Good morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. It's good to have many of you back with us. I know we've got a lot of folks traveling. We have folks out, quite a few folks out again this week. But for those who are back, it is good to have you. It's that time of year where you just never know with vacations. Um, today's a big day, though. Uh, and you're going, well, why? Um, because we are going to complete our sermon series on the Old Testament. Uh, so we are in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, this is the last recorded book of the Old Testament in terms of events. So why then is it stuck where it is in the middle? Um, that seems a little bit odd. It's actually even before you get to the Psalms. You're going, what's going on here, right? Well, that's because when the Old Testament is arranged, it's arranged by the types of books. So don't let that throw you. So the actual events we're, we're talking about this morning in the book of Nehemiah are the last recorded events um, that transpire in the Old Testament. Or another way to put that, these are the last events prior um, to uh, the Incarnation. In fact, there will be a long, sustained period of silence. I'm excited, though, uh, that we will begin a sermon series two weeks from now on the book of Mark. Um, so we intentionally wanted to go straight from the Old Testament uh, and go straight into a gospel, as we obviously have uh, a reason to think that the book of um, that the gospels, which gives the story of Jesus, are the promises that have been kept in uh, in the Old Testament. All right. All that said, uh, we will begin uh, in Nehemiah this morning. Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh comforts. And so I've titled the sermon this morning, Yahweh comforts. Um, so sat around again and thought on that one. That's what I came up with. So uh, there you go. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for help. God, it is an amazing thing uh, that we can come to You, Yahweh, and we can find comfort and protection and help from You so many years after the events that are recorded in this book happen. And yet we, as a modern society, we have all these gadgets and all this stuff Lord, that we would pause from everything and honestly believe, dare to believe, that the most important way we could spend our time is to gather around this book, take seriously what it says, and believe we're going to hear from You. Father, that's where we are this morning. We're a gathered people who believe Your Word in the Scriptures is Your Word to us. And we believe that there is life. And they point us to Jesus. And outside of Christ, we have no life, no peace. Father, I am asking this morning that by Your Spirit, Your Word would go forth. I'm praying for help as a preacher. I'm praying for help for the listener. I'm praying for each person who hears that You would give ears of faith and that You would let faith grow. And Lord, if... There are ears this morning that are hearing this message from an unbelieving perspective. Do, do not believe in the things of Christ. I pray that you would convert his or her heart to know Christ today. We ask that you would do that. We know that you can do that. Father, we pray that you would do work that you see fit for your kingdom as you count profitability in your kingdom. We ask all these things to You, Father. We ask them through Christ, who's Your Son, He's our brother, He's our Lord, He's our Savior, He's our King. And we ask now that, that You would bring all these things to Your people by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, um, Yahweh comforts. Got a takeaway for you. The takeaway is God comforts His covenant people by offering protection from without and protection from within. God comforts his covenant people by offering protection from without and from within. So I divided the sermon into three sections. Uh, a historical, a practical, and theological worldview. Or maybe another way to go about it. What happened? What immediate lessons can be learned? 
And what does this say about God and the world? Now, on a certain sense, this is not just something you have to do for a sermon. You can actually do this, and we do this. You do this, whether you realize it or not, anytime you read different articles. So, example, yesterday I read an article in the newspaper about uh, a certain section in the Homs province of southeastern Syria where late this week ISIS took at least 60 Christians and kidnapped them along with around another couple hundred um, Sunni Muslims. Um, and so what did I do? Well, I actually, and even walking through that, I'm walking through this. What happened? That's a historical consideration. And what are the practical takeaways? So what, what can I do about that? Well, as a believer, you do what you should. You stop and you pray. And you ask for help for my brothers and my sisters and can't imagine, God, what they're going through. And then you reflect on it from a theological standpoint. God, what's going on? God, can you please do something? God, what does this mean about the world? But there is a difference. There's a difference in how you go about it from a newspaper article and how you go about it from Scripture. One of the differences is in historical consideration. When I'm doing that with a newspaper article, one of the things I have to ask myself is, is the data here correct? Because it could be reported incorrectly, right? They could have the, the facts wrong. And given how fast we want our news today, uh, the good news is we get it fast. The bad news is we get the wrong stuff. But uh, that happens all the time, right? But when you're going at it from Scripture, once you have bought in hook, line, and sinker to the idea of inerrancy, there are no questions like that to ask. I don't ask, is it true? I assume it's true, and I move from there. One of the other differences, though, is when I get down to the theological observation part, when it's Scripture, that is actually prescribing. It's shaping. It's actually determining my worldview. It's making a lens for me about how I view the world. But it's actually almost the opposite when I read a regular article because now what I'm actually doing is taking this lens, this worldview that's been shaped by Scripture, and I'm using it to describe to me to help me understand, to make sense of what I'm reading. So when I read what I read yesterday, I don't read surprised that there are people who want to kill others for believing in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Himself said that's the way it would be. I don't leave in any way thinking God doesn't have control of this because God Himself described this would be the way it is. And yet I leave saying, God, help, because He'll help. That has really little to do with Nehemiah. I won't charge you any more for it, um, so that's good. Um, so, uh, now, diving into the um, historical part. Okay, so, remember from our time in Ezra that Ezra and Nehemiah were one book in antiquity. It's one book. And the single book make up three events. So you got chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra, and in that section, you've got Zerubbabel who leads a group of folks, and then you've got another uh, uh, event in chapter 7 through 10 of Ezra, that would be focused more on Ezra, the scribe and the priest, and then the last event is held in the book of Nehemiah. Alright, so all that said, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hinnani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Verse 3. And they said to me, The remnant there in the providence who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates are destroyed by fire. So the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I realize this is an ancient text. It's talking about ancient events, about empires that you may not know that much about. Some of you know quite a bit about this. Some of you don't know nearly as much. I'm going to act as if you might not be as familiar with it. So if you're real familiar, just sit back 
and enjoy for a moment. So let's get our, our grasp again on the time period. Again, if you start on a timeline with the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and you, you have Jesus of Nazareth at the time when He walked the earth, if you look two millennium prior to Jesus, you're going to have the person of Abraham. And two millennium on the other side of Jesus, uh, you're going to have present day. That's us. It's a cute picture of a smartphone up there to let you know. That's us. All right. So you have Abraham on one side and you have us on the other and the time period of Jesus is right there in the middle. Well, if you look at those two millennium between Abraham and Jesus... If you take those two, you can actually divide those, that millennium in half, right roughly, with the person of David. He's the most prominent king of Israel. So he's about halfway in between. Right after David dies, or a little bit after David dies, the, a major event happens, and the nation is divided in two, with Israel, with its capital in Samaria being the top ten tribes, and Judah, its capital being Jerusalem, the bottom couple of tribes. So you have Israel at the top and Judah at the bottom. That's 931 B.C. So we're a thousand years roughly before Jesus. Well, over and over, God warns the people of Israel, if you don't start obeying, then there's going to be horrible curse that's going to fall on you. I'm going to take over your land. Sure enough, in 722, after much warning, they do not, they do not turn, and the God raises up the nation of Assyria. Assyria wipes them out. So now what the only one left is Judah. God is merciful to Judah. And then, astonishingly, amazingly, after watching exactly what happened to their sister nation, after the sister nation going, hearing the same repeated warnings over and over, they do the exact same thing. And so in 586, Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians. So the book of Ezra happens on the other side of the captivity. There is no Israel left and there's no Judah left. The people of God have been scattered. And this is what happens after that time period. Now remember, right before they're going into this, well before Judah goes into it, we get the exact time period this is going to happen from prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah that tell us it's going to be 70 years in exile. And that's exactly what God does. God raises up the Persians around the time of Ezra uh, and Nehemiah. Uh, he raises up the Persians just like he had raised up the Assyrians and just like he raised up the Babylonians. He will use the Persians like he used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge. He'll use the Persians to bring his people back. The thrust of the text is the empires are tools in the hands of God. And praise God, that has not changed. There is no nation or empire on the face of the earth that has not, is not, and will not be a tool in the hand of a sovereign God. And so sure enough, He brings them back. And exactly 70 years after the temple falls in 586, in 516 B.C., in Ezra chapter 7, we see the, uh, the temple is rebuilt. Get it? So, Alright, that's good. I saw shaking heads. I like that. Um, so, now, let's go back and reread Ezra, I mean, Nehemiah, verse 1 together. Chapter 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev, and this is going to be around November or December, in the 20th year, that means 20 years into the reign of Artaxerxes. This is somewhere around 445 B.C. As I was in Susa, the citadel, Susa was one of the royal seats of the Persian Empire, would be located in modern-day Iran, the western portion, far western portion of modern-day Iran. And so Nehemiah, this is key, he's not in Jerusalem. A lot of them had already returned. He's not there. He's in the royal seat. He's actually in the throne room. We're going to find out he has a very prominent position. He's a cupbearer to the king. Verse 2. 
that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So he, he gets a report from um, Hanani, who comes from Judah to Susa. And what is the report? So just make sure you catch what's going on. Nehemiah is a cupbearer of the king. He wants to know what's going on down south with, uh, with his folks. And he asks this question, what, what is going on? How are things? Here's the answer. I ask him concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. So they, so they, sorry, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what's the state of the affairs? Horrible. They don't have protection. They're living in shame. Many of them are poor. We, we know that many of them had actually had to sell their sons and their daughters into financial slavery uh, to be able to pay for it. And so this is the report that Nehemiah gets back. So right there is the set, the problem set for the narrative of Nehemiah. The problem is the nation of, Israel, of, of Jerusalem is in disarray and the walls are broken down, which means they don't have any protection. Somebody needs to help shore up the walls so the people will be protected. Nehemiah responds here. So we consider the, the historical context. He responds by praying. He prays that, that God would help. That's the rest of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Nehemiah goes before the king. And in so doing, he, he risks his life uh, to go before the king. And, and he's granted permission to return. The rest of chapter 2 concludes with Nehemiah going and actually inspecting the wall. So now he's away from Susa, back into Jerusalem. Chapter 3-7 through record how Nehemiah leads a great effort in the midst of great opposition, often danger to his own life. And we see finally there the culmination of chapter 7, the wall is completed. Then in chapters 8-12, through we see that, that God uses Ezra and also Nehemiah to lead reform among the people. They bring out the Word of God. The people hear the Word of God. They respond in confession and commitment and faith. And the book closes in chapter 13 where Nehemiah, who had gone back to Susa for a little while, comes back again to Judah and all the reforms, all the changes, all the promises that they had made were being broken miserably. They were in a state again of disobedience and rebellion. That's how the book ends. It's a historical consideration. That's the book. That's what happens. The wall needs fixing. Nehemiah prays. God uses the king of Persia to send him. He goes down there. He rebuilds the wall. But he also helps bring reform to take care of the disobedience and unholiness of the people. That happens. And then we end with the cycle being repeated with him back down there again and the people also in a state of disobedience and rebellion. Okay. Well, some practical takeaways. This is because Chad doesn't think I can be practical. I want to show him I can. Um, so here's some practical, and I called them takeaways, Chad. I was going to call them other things. I said, I'm calling them a takeaway. You're going to get four of them. You want one every sermon? I'm giving you four. All right? All right. These are practical takeaways. All right. Um, you know, one of the things that interested me is I was... And you can... Most of the books on Nehemiah are so unfortunate that they're just... Here's all the things you need to know about leadership. Oh my goodness. Okay, there's some great things about leadership. That's not the point. Um, but there are some really great things that you're going to see on leadership. But one of the things that I found the most amazing as I'm looking at this is you see some really complementary coupling of action and attitudes we don't normally put together. In fact, we oftentimes disassociate. But you see them coupled together. I, I, I'm calling them the odd couples. Um, I, and 
And in so doing, you're going to see some really neat things about great leadership, but also how God works. So the, the first odd couple is prayer coupled with action. Prayer coupled with action. Look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 1. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah just heard the story, just found out what happened in Jerusalem. He doesn't take off and come up with a list of all the things they could do, pros and cons. These are the ways we ought to act. These are the people we need to influence. He goes before the Lord and he asks for help. He asks for help because he already indicated in the prayer what he's going to do. He's going to go in before the king. You don't go before the king and ask for anything. Or you, you could very easily get your head taken off, literally. More or less, you don't go ask the king to fund and allow you to go rebuild a major city of an old empire, especially if that empire is known best for rebellion. He realizes what he's about to do, but that's exactly what he does. He doesn't think that acting demonstrates a lack of faith. In fact, he thinks it's the right response to prayer. Look in chapter 2. Look at with me in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. It's a cup bear. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should, I not, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what are you requesting? Listen. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Here you have ever praying, constant praying, Nehemiah, asking help from the king, simultaneously going to the God of the universe, asking help. In the middle of the conversation, he stops and prays. He prays and he acts. I want to give you a couple other places in the book. Chapter 4 is probably the most... There's other places, but this would be one of the most prominent ones. Where you just see this trusting in the sovereignty of God while acting. Chapter 4... Verse 4, and then I'm going to look at verse 6, part of verse 4 and then verse 6. Hear, O God, hear, O our God, for we are despised. So they're in the land and the people are just merciless to them. You're going to see this in a little bit. And he prays, Hear, God, we're despised. Help! That's what that is, verse 6. So we built the wall. We prayed and then we acted. Verse 9, We prayed to our God. Conjunction and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. We prayed, and then we acted. Verse 14, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and all the officials and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So over and over, we see Nehemiah relying on God by praying, trusting that God will act, but not sitting back and waiting, but acting. He prays and He takes actions. How often do we act and yet fail to pray? We hear something and immediately move into response mode. How often? It's definitely more my uh, temptation. I like to respond to things. Right? 
Or, how often do we pray, honestly, seek God, trust God, but we fail to act. We fail to actually get up and do something. God's people pray not as a substitute for action, but as a prerequisite for action. It is not a substitute for action. It is a prerequisite for action. So that's the first coupling. We see prayer coupled with action. Another coupling. We see courage in the midst of opposition. So courage in the midst of opposition coupled with care and compassion. Courage coupled with care and compassion. Well, I've already told you how in... Uh, in chapter 4, and we see this other places in Nehemiah, they are, I mean, they are really getting uh, a lot of opposition here. People want them dead. There's a plot to try to kill Nehemiah, and etc. Um, the the non-Jews, many of them Samaritans, this is where the divide will come up for generations to come, is during this time period. They did not want to see the, uh, the Jews rebuild their, uh, their city. In fact, let me give you an example of this in chapter one. I mean, chapter four, verse one. Uh, we'll look at verse one, verse three. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Verse three. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, "Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he'll break it down. He'll break down their stone wall." He's laughing. That's what was happening. They're laughing at him. Nehemiah, he responds over and over with courage. Courage. Standing up in the midst of opposition. Courage is admirable in a leader. But oftentimes when we see courage, we don't see compassion and concern for others. But Nehemiah, you see these couples. In chapter 5, a a group of Jews who were not financially well off, in fact, they were destitute, they come to Nehemiah and they seek help. He doesn't give them all all the reasons why their bad choices got them here, etc. Instead, Nehemiah responds with compassion. In fact, he even goes further. He admits that he himself is part of the problem. I want you to see this. Look with me. Uh, in verse 6 of chapter 5, I was very angry when I heard their outcry. And I held a great assembly against them. Now, the I heard a great assembly against them is, is the folks who he's going to address. He's going to tell them, stop what you're doing. It's causing your other brothers to uh, be financially destitute. Verse 8, And I said to them, We, this is a we, it's a collective, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations... But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So in other words, you took care of protecting your brother against the other nations, but now you're uh, exercising uh, financial hardship upon them. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. In other words, I'm guilty, my family's guilty, and our servants are guilty. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you, may, that you have been exacting from them. This is a willingness to admit fault. It is an ability to sympathize with another person in the predicament that they're in. It's a coupling of courage in the midst of opposition and compassion and care for others. And brothers and sisters, this is at the very core of what we believe as Christians. It is at the heart of the Christian life. For the story of the cross is the story of courage in the midst of opposition, coupled with care and concern for others. Jesus Christ, like Nehemiah, left a throne room, a great risk to His own life, so that He might make better, much better, 
the lives of others. The cross of Christ was Christ, Jesus our Lord, facing God's opposition to our sin head on with courage. And in so doing, He gave us an example of care and concern that this world has never seen before. In acting with care and compassion, He faced the greatest opposition you will ever have in your life. That is your own sin. And He acted in such a way as to provide you a wall of protection that you can never outrun and that you can never outsin. Christians act with courage, but we always act courage coupled with care and compassion. Alright, another practical point. We also see, coupled with repentance and confession, covenant and commitment. Confession coupled with commitment. So I want you to see this in verse 9. This is really interesting. This is how the verse begin, a chapter begins. Chapter 9 begins, and then we're going to look at how it ends. Verse, first verse. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And Israelites separated from themselves, or separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. So you got a group of people. They've heard the word in chapter 8. They're convicted to the core and they stand and they just confess for hours their sin. Sick by their own sin. Confessing honest repentance. This is just a major part of the Christian life. So when, when do we ever stop confessing? When we stop sinning, right? So if it, if it helps you out, we don't have any plans of taking the confession area out of our service anytime soon. As long as the pastoral team is going to be present, we need that because we sin. Now the rest of you might not need it, but do it just for our sake because we need that. We need to be people who repent. But they go further. They make commitments. Verse 38 of chapter 9. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then chapter 10, uh, the beginning of it, is a recitation of all the promises that they promised that they're now going to change. Given this confession, here's the covenant that says this is how we will now live. We will change. I think it's noteworthy because somehow in contemporary Christianity, confession and repentance has been separated from the idea of commitments. In fact, making commitments, honest-to-goodness commitments, is often seen as almost unspiritual. And yet, i got to tell you, we couldn't believe anything further from that point as a church. In fact, what we're trying to do, what we're working hard at doing, is marrying together contrition and commitment. Let me say that again. That's a major part of becoming a healthy church. You marry together honest-to-goodness contrition, sorrowfulness for sin, and commitment to live differently. This is why we have a church covenant. This is why every single person who's a member of the church has to agree to live by. This is why we recite it over and over together. This is our commitment to one another. Given our confession and repentance of sin, this is how we will now live. And I don't know if this hesitance to make commitments in contemporary Christianity is, is maybe an assumption that maybe it sounds arrogant for you to make a commitment about how you will promise to live in the future. The Baptists for centuries have had covenants. And their covenants begun very similar to how ours did. We, don't, we haven't done anything uh, new. We wouldn't know how to be creative as a group of people if we had to be. We're just borrowing from a bunch of old stuff that was really good. This is how ours starts, and this is how a bunch of old Baptist covenants started. We do now, comma, relying on God's gracious aid. 
solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant together. Did you catch the comma? Relying on what? God's gracious aid. There's nothing arrogant about that. That is a promise saying we will do this relying on what God will do. i got to tell you, I'm afraid the reason that commitment is oftentimes divorced from confession is because confession and repentance itself has been cheapened. This is why church membership is so important. We covenant, we commit together to live in a way that gives further evidence of the confession and repentance that we publicly declare. We covenant, we commit to live together to give further evidence of the authenticity of our confession. Alright, final point to consider in this practical section. I don't know if this is practical enough, Chad. We'll find out. We'll find out. All right. Um, so, believe me, we'll find out. Um, a, I'm just playing. He's not that harsh, usually. A final point to consider in the practical section is I want you to see the Word of God coupled with joy in the Lord. Word-focused coupled with joy. All right, here we go. Um, chapter 8, verse 1, Ezra goes and gets the book, and the people want him to read the book to him. Man, if nothing else, you walk away from Nehemiah, you walk away going, this is unreal. I can pick this up in my own language and read it. Do you realize the people had to go beg him, go see if you can find those tablets. Come out here. We'll all stand and listen. So when we're hard on people in the Old Testament for their lack of Bible reading, remember, they didn't have it in their pocket everywhere they went and where they could all read it and get access to. It was much, much harder. Shame on us who have ubiquitous access. Uh, anyway, but they, they do and they read it. Here we are. Um, Ezra 8.1 And all the people gathered as one man in, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And he read read from it, this is verse 3, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and and the women and all those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Amen. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their heads. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave uh, the sense so that the people understood the reading. They explained it to the people. As the people hear the Word of God, they're cut to the quick. They're, They're mourning. They're weeping. Why? It's an acceptable response. They saw what the law of God required. They looked at their lives and they said, these don't match. And they were humbled. It is an acceptable response. But Nehemiah and Ezra will not let the people stay there. They will not let them stay with just sorrow and weeping. But they make them go further into understanding and enjoying God. Verse 9. And Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard from the words of the law. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready to eat. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Ezra and Nehemiah understood that the word can and should bring conviction. But they also understood that it it gives promise and life. I want to be a church that is Word-centered. I want to be a church that takes seriously repentance and change. But if we do that and fall short of embracing the joy of the Lord, then we not only miss out on joy, we misunderstand our faith. We should be a humble, contrite, Bible-centered, joyful group of people. Nehemiah and Ezra. These are the leaders. I mean, they actually give their credentials before this statement, right? What do they say to the people? Eat the the fat and drink the sweet wine. 
Man, I want that sermon one day. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine. Folks, every once in a while, we Bible-thumping Baptists need to have the Scriptures sit us down, say, take a deep breath, go eat a good steak, and drink a choice beverage, and enjoy counting the great things God has done. That's exactly what they did. They were word-focused, but they enjoyed God. All right. Last, theological worldview observations. I've got three questions I want to throw at you that will get us here and then we'll be done. First question, why rebuild the walls? Why rebuild the walls? If you know what's coming for Israel, this seems like a futile assignment. Just a little while, exactly what Daniel promised, or God promised through Daniel, is going to happen. After the Mede-Persians will be the Greeks. They'll go through swiftly and quickly, and then we'll rise up the Seleucids. And within the Seleucids, they will literally sacrifice pigs on the altar of Jerusalem. I mean, in the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. It's not just that the walls don't hold. It's that the place is very, very much unprotected. And then the Roman rule will come. We know what that will bring all the way up to AD 70 when again Jerusalem is sacked. So why this futile, quick, brief rebuilding of the wall? That's my... Maybe it's just too much of a task-oriented guy, but I'm like, why make him do it? It's just going to fall, right? Why so many names? Uh, I spent some time over the last... A few weeks reading start to finish Nehemiah a couple times. And a couple times I had to look down make sure I wasn't in the book of Numbers. As you go through this book, I mean chapter after chapter, it's just name after name after name. Why so many names, God? Then, one of my biggest questions. Maybe because I've grown up watching a bunch of movies with happy endings. Why in the world does chapter 13 end like it does? Come on, right? This is the final chapter of the Old Testament in terms of events. This is it. It's going to go down like that? You're talking about a downer. I mean, if they'd have ended in chapter 12, there's some really sweet spots to end. And if I'd been in charge, I'd have done it that way. You're glad I didn't, right? Why? Nehemiah comes back from Susa. And it's not just like he finds a couple of people aren't telling the full truth when they should. He finds that the priests aren't being paid. The Sabbath wasn't being honored. The people were mingling with, with the foreigners again. They'd taken pagan women as their wives. You remember Tobiah the Ammonite who laughed at the wall and said a fox could knock it down? They don't only give him a house inside of Jerusalem. The Ammonite... They give him a house in the temple. I'm not kidding. Look with me at part of chapter 13, verse 24. And half of their children, this is Nehemiah speaking this, it's disgusted. Verse 24. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, before you hear somebody make this an argument about English language, it has nothing to do with it, especially since English language was nowhere close to being invented at the time this was written. But it has nothing to do... The main point here is if they can't speak the Hebrew language, how much of the law do you think they're understanding? None, right? Verse 25, And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. So if you ever think that Pastor Charlie and, and Pastor Chad are rough with church discipline... If you have not yet been confronted, beaten, and have your hair pulled out, it could be worse. <laughs> you shall not give your daughters uh, to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Listen to verse 26. He's invoking the name of Solomon. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. 
He was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all of Israel. I'm telling you over and over and over. I think the moment of Solomon is so important. I think it's, it's supposed to be a second Eden moment. Like, hey, maybe this is it. And you don't even have to wait till Solomon is dead. In Solomon's lifetime. Solomon himself sins egregiously against the Lord. That's brought up in the final chapter of the events of the Old Testament. I think it's very significant. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. In other words, people learn. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God? That's Nehemiah. That's how it closes. What a depressing note. How could they be as morally bankrupt as ever? Hold that. Why the walls? Well, not only are the walls a fulfillment that God had already made to them, which is the biggest reason why the walls have to get rebuilt. God said they would, so they will. Because He promised that in Jeremiah and Isaiah. But they point to a time that is not yet even now fully consummated. Isaiah 26, verse 1. Stay with me. We're almost there. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So in that day, that is a future time. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as what? Walls. There's coming a day when salvation of God will be the walls for His people. Zechariah chapter 2. Love this section. I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the width and what is the length. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him. He said, run! Say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire. All around, declares the Lord, I will be their glory in the midst. The rebuilt walls matter because they point to a city that has not yet fully come. Recall the imagery we've talked about over and over in the Old Testament, why the temple mattered so much. The temple was the place where God and man are at peace with one another. And we've said the promise of God is that there is coming a day when the entire earth will be a temple unto God. Made a temple because Christ Jesus offered His body to be a temple so that we might have peace by the blood of the cross. There is coming a day when God will protect His people Himself. He will be their wall. Salvation will hold them in. There will be those on the outside who will experience the eternal wrath and judgment of God. And then there will be a remnant on the inside who will be God's people, made so by God, saved by God, held in by God. So, why end that way? Because it tells us something else Someone else is needed. We need a king who can secure the hearts of his people. So, do you want to be a Nehemiah like wall builder today? Let me give you two quick ways. Number one, share the gospel. Why? So that the wall of salvation will grow longer and, and stronger and further and broader. Two, care about the church. If you want to help prepare for that day, be part of building a healthy church where members grow in knowledge of God and holiness. Muslims believe in something called the caliphate. They believe that they can build for themselves a political 
military state where their religion reigns. Here clearly, Christians deny that altogether. We do not believe that before Jesus comes back, there will ever be any nation state or geopolitical force that will represent Christianity. It will not happen. But we believe in the church. We believe that in the church, salvation happens through the church. We believe that in the church, the walls are set up and declared as we covenant together to live differently. We believe that if we can, and this is a big part of what we're praying for and hoping for and striving for together, If you can have a healthy church where the lives of the members look different than those on the outside, it will clarify for believers what the coming city will look like. And it will also, God willing, clarify for an outside world what the new kingdom will look like. So be part of growing a healthy church. And why so many names? It's actually kind of simple. One reason is it shows the direct fulfillment that God took care of His people. One name by one name. But it also is easy. I give you a list of names and you think that you're on it or your family member's on it. What's the very first thing you're going to do? Look for what? Your name or your family member's name. Those names mattered a lot to the people that were on it. Let me tell you where I got encouragement from that this week. If you're ministering, you're evangelizing to people, and it feels like over and over, it is one brick wall, no pun intended, after the other. This is going nowhere. Nobody is being converted. Share the gospel? (laughs) Whatever. One name. One name. For the person who's converted, I promise you, they'll be glad you continue to share. For the life that's changed because you continue to give to ministry, continue to be part of it, continue to endure, I promise it will matter. And the kingdom of God is made up not of bricks and mortars, but the names of the souls of the children of God. One day is coming when the King will be here and you and I will have secured that which is without, but praise God, that which is within. We will end this battle with sin. Let's pray. 